begin. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 22. Hebrews 9, 15 to 22. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, instructive gospel to our hearts and souls. Father, let us revel. Let us be touched by the work of your Spirit that would just rest our, our minds our thoughts into the deep waters of your holy word here in this passage. We're a needy people for you to work upon us to the depths of our inner souls and our inner thoughts. So do it so that we who are needy will find rest and you, in that rest, will be glorified through your Son. Amen. The biggest, the most important question that comes out of this text this morning is, are you an heir. Are you an heir of Jesus' last will and testament? I can get bigger than that. Another way to ask the question is when Jesus wrote his will, did he leave you? An inheritance. Another way to say the same thing is, are 
you one of the called. It's right there in verse 15. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Right there, that verse 15, what I just read, as you, as you, as you just look at what the Holy Spirit is inspiring the author of Hebrews and what the Hebrew writer meant, that is the main point. There's no other main point of this passage. That's it. Everything else is support. That's the main point. Christ Jesus became a mediator of the new covenant for the purpose that the heirs called the called, that they may receive the promise, which is an eternal inheritance. So, have you been called? Have you heard the call? Or a better way to say it, have you been called to saving faith? Uh, you can just simply put it this way. Are you a believer? Is he your treasure? Have you come to Jesus? And if so, if the answer is yes, then Jesus has left you an inheritance. This word call here is the same call that Paul talks about in Romans 8, verses 29 to 30, when he writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, his Son Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, logically, in what is written right there, the called there. They're all justified. How could that possibly be? Because no one's justified apart from faith. So what is clearly assumed is that if you're called, then you, by definition, have come to believe. You have come to faith. In other words, this call there in Romans is not the general call of the gospel, like, like Bob and Matthew and sometimes Justin and on a college campus when they evangelize, tell people the gospel and, and tell them how to be saved. You, you do this and we're supposed to do that. That is the general 
call. But, but that's not what this is. This is a special call because every person who is called in, in this way are justified. They all come to faith. And this is clearly illustrated by Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you'll look there for a moment. In verses 22 to 24, Paul writes, For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we, here's the general call, we preach Christ crucified. There's the general call. And the response to that is, it's a stumbling block to Jews. And it's foolishness to Gentiles. But now here comes a different call. The effectual call. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, to them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's why Jesus came to die. It's one of the significant purposes for what he purchased. And verse 15 tells us, so that, of, of our text, of our text in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Okay, let's go back now. Notice the beginning of our passage there in verse 15. It begins with the word, therefore. Which means, you've got to connect it to what he just previously said, which is verses 11 to 14, right before it. In other words, because of Jesus' blood, because of his sacrificial death and his ascension and entering into the uncreated holy of holies. That's the context. Because of that, therefore, Jesus is the mediator. That's what it says. Of the new covenant. So let's, let's stop right there for a moment. Mediator. Of the new covenant. Why? Because of our alienation from God. Because all of us born since Adam, except for one, are guilty. We're guilty before God. Now, I don't mean guilty in the sense of feel guilty feelings. Many people don't. The human conscience can be seared so bad that they become a psychopath. No, that's not the issue here. The issue is actual legal guilt before a holy God. And the reality is that if God condemns you on the day of judgment in the future, then your guilt becomes permanent. And God's 
final penalty for sin is eternal separation from Him. That's how Paul wrote it in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7-8. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. All of us are born into sin, alienated from God. We all by nature, according to Ephesians 2, are born as children of God's wrath. And because we're alienated from God, okay, here it is now, because of that, we need a mediator, a, a go-between to reach to God, to reach to us, to stand in the gap. Why do we need the mediator? Well, here's another huge theological term, but biblical New Testament term. We need the mediator in order to be reconciled. Reconciled. Kids, if you don't know what that is, that's when you and your friend have been going really well for a long time and then something between you happens and you just don't want to see each other's faces. You're so angry. You need to come to reconciliation. We need to be reconciled. So that's what Paul writes to Timothy just simply because it's, it's the core of his entire worldview, meaning the gospel here. In, in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God. Right, Bob? And there is one mediator between God and man, human beings. And, and that one mediator is, quote, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. And so... Verse 15 of our passage says, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. We need a mediator between us and our Creator in order to bring reconciliation. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 to 19. All of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world 
to Himself by not counting their sins against them. Oh, what a gospel. Flip over to Romans 5 for a second. In Romans 5 verse 10, Paul says it this way. Hear it. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Okay, stop. Don't misread it. He doesn't mean, well, when, when God was your enemy and you didn't like God at all and you didn't trust Him and I don't want any of that, those commandments and how to live my life and it's not about your feelings or dispositions of God in that little verse we just read right here. It's not that God was our enemy, meaning He's my enemy. It's that we were His enemy. So here, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Therefore, what? Much more. Now that, that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His Son's life. The reconciliation between sinful people and God, it does ultimately go both ways. Yes. No one is saved or in Christ who has not had an attitude change. In other words, toward God. That, 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 that does happen. It's part of what the gospel is. The sinner in their sinful state, which by its definition is against God, even if it's religious, needs to be changed from defiance. And unbelief to childlike trust, faith in Him. That, that needs to happen on the one side. On the other side, God's attitude toward us must be changed from wrath to mercy. Now, we all... As sinners, as creatures, are desperate for God to change our hearts toward Him, or it will never happen. But God does not need any outside help, He doesn't need our help to change His disposition toward us. Change that I need as a sinner born in this world must come from outside of me to the inside. But God's change originates from within His eternal nature. His eternal plan before He ever created anything. Which means God's change is really not a change in the sense 
that our change is a change. It's an utterly different animal altogether. It is God's own eternal without beginning purpose. His purpose to stop being against me and to start being for me. If you're still there in Romans 5, look at verse 10 again. Notice the words. While we were enemies. This is when we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. While we were enemies. In other words, the first change was God's change. Not ours. We were still, at that very moment, enemies of God. He sends His Son to change something in Him toward us. God was reconciled to us. While we were still, we were still now against God. He sent His Son to bear the wrath-deserving sin of us in order to make it possible for Him to treat us with mercy. God's first move in reconciling us to Himself was to remove the obstacle that made him irreconcilable. Our sin. Again, remember, Paul just said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, what was God doing? God was reconciling the world to himself. How? By not counting their trespasses against them. Now, again, stay there in Romans 5, because verse 10 there, it's an argument for verse 9, so let's just let the Word speak to us. Since therefore, we Christians, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we in the future be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And now, as verse 10 comes in, and He unfolds it. In other words, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. This is why we need a mediator. Someone to accomplish that double reconciliation. God's being reconciled to us, which will be the cause of our being reconciled. 
to God. This is what Jesus did in becoming the mediator of the new covenant. So just keep the flow of thought. Yeah, I know it's linear. Keep it going now. Remember the context. It's the new covenant, which he is referring to Jeremiah chapter 31, which he just quoted extensively in chapter 8. So a little portion of that is chapter 8 of Hebrews, verses 10 to 12, quoting Jeremiah 31 on the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus came to purchase these promises with his blood. God is reconciled to us while we were still enemies. And when he did it, he changed from wrath to mercy. Logically, it's how it works. Then, His mercy then reaches out and it performs what we dead sinners desperately need to be changed. To be raised spiritually from the dead, from the inside out, so that we would love His Word, His Gospel, the truth, his will. So that when we hear Billy Graham or Bob and Matthew, God, in the hearing, would also be doing something. Writing that will of His upon our hearts. And thus we say, Yes! I see. Greatest news ever. That's what Jesus purchased. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. So follow the writer's logic in his thinking as he's been flowing these last few chapters. He's already made it very clear because Jeremiah makes it clear. And so he reiterates it that under the new covenant, every person who is objectively or actually in the new covenant, every one of them know the Lord. That's what the covenant said. In this covenant, very unlike the law or the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant. All co there were people who were believers in that covenant who had the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and there were many who weren't, but they're still all in that same old covenant. In the new covenant, there are no unbelievers. 
In that covenant, as Jeremiah says, you shall not need to go tell your brother in the covenant. Come on, I can't, you need to know the Lord. No, because for they shall all, all of them know me. Okay, why is that true of the new covenant? Because part of the new covenant is God's act to do exactly that. Change their hearts. Bring them miraculously from spiritual blindness and death to new life in Christ and faith in His Son. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Okay. So, no wonder now, back to our passage in chapter 9, verse 15 of Hebrews. No wonder the author says, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That call is the miraculous writing of His will and desires upon the new covenant people's hearts so that they all come to savingly know him and inherit eternal life. Then notice the end of verse 15 where he's, he's going to reiterate the foundation of what he's been saying throughout this book. How, how could God do that? It's based on something. It does, he doesn't just do it. There's a foundation and a basis of God being righteous, remaining righteous and holy, and showing mercy and doing that to dead sinners. The second part of verse 15. Since. How is this possible? Since, or in other words, because a death has occurred that redeems them. Who's the them? I mean, I would love to sit here for a couple of hours and answer, look at it. The them are the called. To redeem, it redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay. Now, it's something hit the writer says, okay, like teachers want to do. Let me give an illustration. Let me try to drive this home some other way. I, I, okay. I want to do a word picture, and that's what he does. And so he puts a different twist on it now that he hadn't done yet. And he compares it to a last will in Testament. You know, honey, we still do need to do our will. I think the unruh's just got there done. You guys have yours. Okay, you, you put in there, who are the heirs? What are their names? What do they get? Okay. It was the same thing back then. Look at verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So, Lamechids, you get nothing until both mom and dad are dead. I mean, unless we choose to give you something, but 
That will, even though it's written, is not in effect until we're dead. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Okay, just a quick note now as you look at the passage. If you're reading ESV, this is true. I think it's true of the NIV. But the words that are translated into English here, covenant, and then here the word will in verse from 15 to 22, they're the exact same word in the Greek, diatheke. Now, so why does the ESV choose, I think the NIV did, to translate it with two different English words? Covenant in verses 15 and 18, and a will, will, in verses 16 and 17. Well, because they're paying attention to the context. It's a legitimate translation. Because it's clearly what the author is doing. He's changing, he's going to this analogy that he wants to use now. And why would he do that? Here's a, here's a couple reasons, very simply. In his own time, in own culture, in the Roman Empire, and in the Greek language, they had wills and testaments also. And the word for that is the exact same word we translate covenant, diatheke. That's the word. He sees that. He's just talked about Jesus' death purchased by his blood. Death happened. He sees the connection. Oh, here's a good uh, analogy. And he's also just referred to an eternal inheritance. Wills have everything to do with who's going to inherit all that stuff that the dead person left behind. So he sees those connections. And for him, this is, I just think it's an easy jump that if there's an inheritance, there must be a will that states who the heirs are and what they're going to get. That's what he's doing. Now, you don't, when you read analogies, like Jesus used lots of them, call them parables, don't overread into them without using common sense. What's, what's his main point? which is usually what analogy is for. Don't overread stuff into, into this when he uses what we all as human beings now, and they did 2,000 years ago, understand as a last will and testament, and who are your heirs, and which stuff goes to whom. And you know, and you get it notarized, and it's official, and it goes into effect when we die. Well, look at that, God, like us. In other words, you realize he was going to die one day. No. I need to be responsible with my stuff and do a will. It's not what happened. We already know from the book of Hebrews precisely why he died. And here's one of the core things back in chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, or humanity, human beings, he himself the second person of the Trinity, likewise partook of the same things. In order that, through death, he might destroy the one who had the power of death. 
So why did he do it? He did it in order to destroy death. Or to just put it this way, according to our passage, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance in the resurrection. He purchased an eternal inheritance by defeating death, unending joy in God. And the whole point of chapter 2, verse 14 is, God can't die. Meaning, in His divine nature, it is impossible. He's not mortal. The immortal cannot die. But God wills to experience death in order to destroy death. In order to deliver in His will those heirs, deliver them from slavery to death. So, how can the immortal God experience death? And the answer is Christmas. The answer is to become a real, genuine human being. And in that human nature, experience death. Why did he do it? Oh, this is the gospel. From all eternity past, God purposed, God willed to pass on to his heirs. His inheritance by grace. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. The death of Christ is done. The inheritance is released. The will is in effect. Now, another place where this will break down, right? Is this. Here, here's the thing about this. Well, you don't overread into the analogy. By definition, in our human experience, the one making the will cannot be and never is the executor of the will. Because by definition, they're not around. So the one that they name to be executor is the executor. This is where this is different because the very person who dies to enforce the will is the executor of the will. And it's just very simple. Why? Because God raised him from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God as high priest forever, making intercession for the heirs and making sure that all of the heirs, past, present, and future, get their stuff. Jesus mediates the will. He's the executor of the will. I want you to either listen or read along in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4 for a moment. And ask yourself, is he referring to me? 
It's almost like when a family, an extended family, might go to the executor, who in that case would be maybe a lawyer, and they go to the office not knowing what was left, and do they get anything? Starting with verse 3, First Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be called. I know, I know, it doesn't say that. He uses this term here. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead unto, here it is, uninheritance. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, now, verse 17, it says, For it will take effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. That's the, that's the analogy he's drawing. We all know that. Don't read something into it that he's not trying to say, which would be, oh, Therefore, every human being who ever lived before Jesus came to earth and then died, and everyone even in the Old Testament, by definition, got none of the inheritance that is listed in the will called Jeremiah 31. Like new birth, being called forgiveness of sins. And so that's why he connects us there. Look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without death. Blood, that's what he means. And then he goes on to show how Moses made the shedding of blood, the killing, making death there, the central, central to the old covenant. And he says in verse 22, Indeed, under the law, in that covenant, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And his point is the same point he's been making all along, that during the, the, the finite time period of, of the old covenant, that all of that Shedding of blood was pointing forward to the death of Christ who would purchase the new covenant once and for all. Means he'll purchase new birth and he'll purchase forgiveness of sins. And so that those who came before Christ, Gentile or Jew. Those who, for instance, we read about in the Old Testament, who lived before Christ. And we see that they're people of faith. It's because they had a foretaste of the new covenant, even though they lived under the old covenant era. Hebrews will make this crystal clear, right, in a couple of chapters when we get to chapter 11. 
makes it clear that Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Rahab, the prostitute, they all experienced the writing of the law on their hearts. They were born again, which was what produced their knowing God, saving faith, salvation. And so those old covenant sacrifices, Moses, blood, just go read it. It's sprinkled on everything. They only pictured the one and only blood sacrifice that would actually wipe away their sin and their guilt and reconcile God to them, Christ's blood. And that's why God was reconciled to Abel. It's why he was reconciled to Abraham, David. And Paul knows it, and he lays this out clearly in Romans 3. I don't have time to slowly read it, but it's, he put Christ forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith, that redemption. And, and this was so that God, who appeared, this is what he said, he appeared before Christ came to be unjust because he put away people's sin without Christ's blood. But he said, no, 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 no. It was Christ's blood that put away their sin. And God always did it, even before he came, based upon his blood pictured in the blood sacrifices. That's Paul's point, that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, like Abraham, who believed God and was justified. Back to how I opened the sermon. The question is, are you an heir? Have you been removed? from just condemnation and destined for an eternal inheritance. Is your name written in Jesus' last will and testament? There is no more important question in existence for any human soul. Now, is that inheritance that Jesus left in his will, is it to an uncertain group? Or does his will have a particular people in view that he loves as children and to whom he leaves an eternal inheritance? The answer to that question is clear. It's right there in verse 15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that, in order that, those who are called may receive the promised 
eternal inheritance. Respect the Bible. Respect its grammar. Don't just proclaim, I believe the Bible's inerrant and infallible. Read it that way. The verbal form called here is a passive voice, meaning the ones it's referring to, they're the subject of the verb, but they're not doing the verb calling. They're the ones being called by another. And just make something clear. It is absolutely true and absolutely biblical. I will just quote Paul. It's very simple. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, Same word. There, it's an active voice. All those sinners who do the verb calling, save me, will be saved. That's true. It's utterly biblical. But that's not what he's saying in this text. This text is those who are called by God. In other words, God is the owner of the estate. And he makes a will. And he chooses the heirs of his will. God's last will and testament. It's not left to chance. It's just, as Jesus said in his own earthly ministry, all that the Father gives to me, Every one of them will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that He's given me. But I'll raise it up on the last day. Paul, re-say that. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And then on the last day, those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the gospel of salvation. It is not like the old covenant where we human beings and sinners hear God speak to us in the Bible, on stone, outside of us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, but without the much-needed heart transplant. That's the Old Covenant. New Covenant, he says, Jeremiah, will not be like the Old Covenant that I made with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. My covenant, which they broke. Because part of that covenant was not. New birth, calling to saving faith. But the new covenant means that along with the outward call on paper or stone, 
Christ calls many to the effectual, internal call to faith so that they come into their inheritance. God not only wrote his will and then put that will into effect by the death of his son and made him the executor of it by raising him from the dead, but he is also even this very day in January 2023 calling persons out of darkness, out of unbelief, out of spiritual death, in order that they too come into their promised inheritance of eternal life. This is the new covenant. This is the gospel. This is the wisdom of God to do it this way. So, let's, I'm going to read a little scripture to us. And let us listen to it and marvel at it. And then worship Him. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called from among both Jews and Greeks, to them, Something happened. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how deep is your love for us. It is vast beyond all measure that you should give your only Son to make us sinful Wretches, your treasure. We thank you. Amen. Let us stand.